its Innovation Station initiative, the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues at the U.S. Department of State is amplifying women and girls developing solutions to global challenges and helping them connect with new communities that could benefit from their work. Today, you'll meet a few of those innovators as they explain their game-changing, translatable initiatives in their own words. Welcome to SGWE's Innovation Station. Although wetlands are some of the most biologically productive ecosystems on Earth, the services they provide are often overlooked. By definition, wetlands are low-lying portions of land that are seasonally or perpetually covered by water, and they play a central role in water filtration and storage. The Chesapeake Bay collects water from 1.5 million acres of wetlands across the watershed region and provides ecosystem services like nutrient cycling and erosion control that support a roughly $2 billion seafood industry. Increasing development, land degradation, and climate change threaten wetland ecosystems across the United States and around the world. Despite their essential roles, wetlands are not always protected with the same level of care afforded to other sources of freshwater. In fact, half the world's wetlands have been drained, destroyed, and converted into agricultural land. The alarming rate of wetland destruction in the Chesapeake Bay region has prompted a push for rehabilitating wetlands, of which 9,000 acres have been restored on farmland since 2017. Now, wetlands and species they support frequently exhibit a symbiotic relationship as well. Oysters, for instance, feed on algae, whose growth is exacerbated by nitrate pollution from agricultural runoff, and oyster reefs provide habitat for crabs and fish. Oysters and other keystone species are important for restoring and maintaining healthy wetland ecosystems while supporting a seafood sector that provides 34,000 jobs in Maryland and Virginia alone. Considering these statistics, it's also instructive to note that women represent a growing number of workers in fishing and aquaculture in the Chesapeake Bay and beyond. Restoring, constructing, and protecting the wetlands of the world is a daunting task, but today we are lucky to chat with two women leading solutions to this ever-important challenge. Please join me in welcoming Jill Costell, Senior Environmental Engineer at the Wetlands Initiative, and Linda Hunter, Founder and Director of the Wild Oyster Project. Thank you both so much for joining us. And Jill, I'm going to start with you here today. Would you begin by briefly introducing the work of the Wetlands Initiative? Yes, thank you for this opportunity. I'm very honored and happy to be here today to share with you our work at the Wetlands Initiative, which is a nonprofit based in the state of Illinois. We design, restore, create wetlands. We innovate, collaborate, employ sound science to improve water quality, habitat for plants and wildlife, and our climate. In Illinois, we lost about 90% of our wetlands to development and agriculture. Therefore, as Aubrey mentioned, we also lost the very important ecological processes and functions that these wetlands provide to the environment and society. So we need to bring the wetlands back to the landscape at every opportunity to improve water quality, flood storage, groundwater recharge, wildlife habitat, shoreline protection, and recreation. At the Wetlands Initiative, we have two basic strategies in our work, on-the-ground restoration of the wetland landscapes, both by ourselves and in partnership with other organizations. We can do the design through implementation and management, or just any step along the way, depending on our project and the partners. Our other work strategy focuses on the innovation way, innovative ways to promote and finance large-scale wetland restoration by others. If wetland restoration or creation is going to happen on a significant scale across the landscape, 
meaning many wetland ecosystems all over the place, then others need to have a strong convincing reason to join in this effort. And we believe this is likely to happen through innovations that leverage those valuable ecosystem services provided wetlands, such as markets. Um, and these can be applied to communities here in the, in the United States and in other countries to protect our watersheds from the headwaters to the estuaries. Thank you so much, Jill. Can't wait to dive in with more. But for now, Linda, welcome. We're so happy to have you joining us as well. Um, would you be able to tell us just a little bit about the Wild Oyster Project? I'm honored to be here and join such an astute and talented cadre of um, women working um, to save the planet. <laughs> so the Wild Oyster Project's mission is to rewild San Francisco Bay by restoring our native Olympia oysters. And we do that by engaging communities um, to help us. And we have four uh, overarching programs. One is to uh, recycle oyster shells that we do in partnership with restaurants and volunteers who pick up shell where it's taken to a shell mound and cured for a couple of years before it can be put back in the bay. Um, we build oyster reefs using the best available science and, um, and inspiration that we've garnered from wonderful projects on the East Coast and around the world. Um, we engage uh, landscape architects and uh, urban planners. Uh, we're always there when they are figuring out what what we're, what are we going to do about this shoreline which is in danger of disappearing, and we're like oyster restoration. <laughs> so, um, and we also the last one is uh, we support local oyster farmers uh, and sustainable fisheries. Thank you so much, Linda. Um, we'll get into some of those projects in just a few moments. But for now, uh, Jill, I want to start with um, a couple of questions for you um, about the wetlands work that your organization is doing. Now, I know that the Wetlands Initiative conducted a study that predicted the potential utility of a nutrient credit trading system to incentivize the restoration or creation of wetlands on farms. I was wondering if you could explain how, based on your research, how would such a system work and what barriers to implementation did you identify when doing that study? Um, so agriculture contributes a significant amount of nutrient pollution into our waterways due to fertilizer runoff. And returning some wetlands to the farm landscape would provide one of the most cost-effective solutions to reducing nutrient runoff. But how can we incentivize farmers to implement wetlands designed to reduce nutrient runoff? You know, farmers are interested in growing crops, not wetlands. So one of the ways we explore is through nutrient credit trading, sometimes known as water quality trading. In this case, farmers who voluntarily install these treatment wetlands on their private lands would generate nutrient reduction credits. And then these credits can be sold to a municipal or industrial facility like a wastewater treatment plant who must meet some regulatory obligation to reduce their own nutrient discharges. For example, a facility may need to reduce their nitrogen output annually by one ton to meet new permit regulations. They can make costly infrastructure upgrades or they can purchase one ton of nitrogen credits from farmers who have 
now installed wetlands that individually or in co combination remove one ton, one ton of nitrogen upstream. And we can monitor the water quality going in and out of the wetlands so we know exactly how much nitrogen or phosphorus these wetlands remove. And our economic analysis of a hypothetical market in a real Illinois agricultural watershed found that wetlands would be much less expensive than upgrading even small or medium-sized treatment plants to achieve the same nutrient reduction in the waterways. In fact, the wetlands remove so much more nitrogen than would be needed demand under different water quality standards. So essentially it comes out to be a win for the farmers as the sellers, as now they have an alternative income source. The municipality and the ratepayers of that municipality as the buyer are saving money. And the environment wins because well, we get more wetlands on the landscape and they're all providing all these other ancillary benefits of habitats, water storage and carbon sequestration. So, of course, everything is easy on paper. There are several issues that need to be considered with nutrient credit trading, including market structure, the rules and conditions to participate in trading, baseline for selling credits, how the utilities deal with the risk and liability as they are the regulated entity. Farmers are not regulated. And how do we get buy-in from everyone, from the farmers, utilities, state, and federal agencies? How do we bring a trusted market to place? So the main barrier in Illinois is that we don't have numeric water quality standards, so there's no demand. Wastewater treatment facilities, they don't have to reduce their nitrogen discharges right now. We don't until there are standards. Other states, including those in Chesapeake Bay, though, have started nutrient credit trading programs. Very interesting. Thank you so much. I, I feel like I could ask you so many more follow-up questions about that, but I won't. Um, instead, I want to talk a little bit about this idea of getting wetlands back onto the land. Um, the Wetlands Initiative has a project called the Smart Wetlands Project, which I know you are very, very deeply involved in. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us what this project is and how it works with individual farms or farmers to, excuse me, to really tailor these constructed wetland solutions? Yeah, so after, you know, we realized when we weren't getting those water quality standards anytime soon, it seemed like we wanted to get the wetlands on the ground now. Let's get, no, we're not waiting. Um, and we had a little mov motivation and farmers have some motivation and increased interest in reducing their nutrient loss voluntarily now, um, as Illinois in 2015 reduced uh, released its nutrient loss reduction strategy with the goal of reducing the amount of nitrogen and phosphorus leaving the state by 45%. Identified the main source of nitrogen pollution. Uh, leaving the main source um, was agriculture, which is not surprising given that 75% of the state is in agriculture, primary corn and soybeans. And the science behind the strategy showed that watersheds with the most tile drain cropland contribute the most nitrogen. Essentially, tile drain farm ground is a leaky system. In case you're not familiar with tile drainage or subsurface drainage, it is essentially a network of pipes underground that are used to get water off the field by lowering the water table in order to improve crop growth and yield. About 12 million acres of Illinois crop ground is tile drained and more tile, not plastic, versus clay is going in today to mitigate the impacts of the increased precipitation, and to reduce production risk as the climate changes. Uh, this subsurface drainage flows into ditches and streams and rivers, and eventually, in our case, the Gulf of Mexico. But it's just not the water leaving the field. It's also the, what is in the water, which includes very high levels of nitrate pollution. 
And we're addressing these problems by using constructed wetlands to intercept, capture, and treat this tile water before it leaves the field and reaches the tile, tile uh, the ditch or the stream. Uh, constructed wetlands are wetlands specifically designed for the purpose of improving water quality. Treatment wetlands have been studied for decades and are known to be very cost-effective long-life practice. We have branded our tile treatment constructed wetlands smart wetlands because we're using the latest available geographical information systems data and the best design practices. And through our program, we are performing proactive outreach and education, providing free and technical assistance to the farmers on the signing design and implementation of these constructed wetlands for tile drainage treatment. There are specific design aspects of wetlands to ensure they are effectively reducing nitrate and phosphorus entering the wetland so cleaner water is leaving the wetland. Having cleaner water upstream means less impact to downstream water such as estuaries. Thank you so much, Jill. All right, I'm going to turn from one of the wetlands initiatives projects here over to one of the wild oyster uh, projects projects <laughs> in this case. Uh, so the Wild Oyster Project has a project called the Oyster Base Camps. Uh, Linda, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the Oyster Base Camps program um, and how these base camps help restore oyster populations. Sure. The Oyster Base Camp program was launched at the beginning of the pandemic when we realized we couldn't get a bunch of people together again and ensure their safety. And we thought, well, how can we keep people engaged um, and uh, pique their interest in oyster res restoration without being out in the community as much as we were prior to the pandemic? So we created this project called Oyster Base Camps, which is basically um, a refurbished crab pot and it's filled with cured oyster shell. Um, and the, these, state, these are stations all around the bay and they are regularly, regularly monitored by volunteers and um, who collect data and upload them into a, a, a big database that was created for us. And um, it's, it's really a wonderful way to engage the community and we have plans to it, install a lot more of them. Um, because it, not only is it a way to uh, um, get people engaged in finding out, uh, collecting data and finding out more about the oysters that are there, but um, it's like a big science project for the community. And uh, people um, are amazed about what an oyster base camp can attract besides baby oysters. I mean, there's fish and there's crabs and there's worms and all kinds of critters I mean, that live in an oyster reef. And our hope is that um, even though these stations are small, that they will um, attract um, the remnant populations of native oysters that are in the bay, and um, they'll serve as a, a launching pad and go out and make their own homes when when they spawn. So it's it's a it's a very cool program, and um, um, we're we're really excited, and we, and we get a lot of feedback from people who are participate about how um, uh, how interesting the science is behind it. 
because you should understand that um, as opposed to uh, other solutions to uh, prevent um, damage from rising seas caused by climate change, which are more riprap or, you know, more um, solid barriers that keep the water out of the bay, um, that an oyster reef is a living, breathing ecosystem that provides all of these um, ecosystem uh, ecological benefits. And, uh, and it's full of holes and crevices and, um, and it grows along with, uh, you know, uh, with the, the critters around it. Some people refer to oysters as ecosystem engineers because um, once you get some oysters um, successfully attached to some substrate and they start to grow their own home, then um, they invite all of these other critters to come and share their home with them. That's lovely. And I know that when um, we talked previously, you shared some, I think, pretty pretty descriptive and, and helpful examples of observational successes um, of these efforts to rebuild oyster reefs, like how quickly certain species were returning, how fishermen were responding. Do you want to overview that for us here, some of those successes? Sure. I, I'll tell you, this is purely anecdotal, but when we, we built an oyster reef at Point Pinole, uh, which is at the upper uh, northern part of uh, San Francisco Bay, and um, it was uh, the, the very first uh, oyster reef that was built entirely by volunteers, 100 reef balls, and we did it the old-fashioned way with... Uh, an old cement mixer and crushed oyster shell and sand, which we created this substance called bakrete. And then we use these molds and, um, and we deployed them into the bay after getting all of the required permits. Uh, we deployed them to the bay and um, Point Pinole is actually rather remote it's a it's a it's a park that most people don't know about it it's in richmond california and in the, in the east bay and uh but there is a fishing pier at the end of it and so the people who do know about that park know uh that it's a great place to take your dog or go biking but there's a whole group of fishermen who who go there to fish on the pier so i got a phone call once from a fisherman who was complaining that his fishing gear had gotten stuck on one of our reef balls. And I said, hmm, I mean, if you've ever been fishing, that happens quite a bit. Like you'll, you're working with hooks after all, right? So, so I said, hmm, that's interesting. Have you noticed more fish? And he, you could kind of, you know, hear him, the, the wheels turning and he said, yes. Yes, I have. Thank you very much. Um, so um, it was. It's not only that the fish that returned, but the birds were. It, it was like they were just waiting for the the reef balls to be deployed. I mean, you could see them lining up because they knew that uh, that meant food for them. So. The day after those the deployment of the reef balls, there were 
um, just so many more birds, egrets and shorebirds and um yeah it's just, it's wonderful to see and we we did not do anything as scientific as uh put tags on fish or anything like that but but uh by all accounts that reef is is thriving and continues to attract a lot of marine life it's awesome you yeah, love it's like a t- community testimonial we love it um yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um i'm going to circle back uh to a question for you jill um when we're talking about installing new wetlands, especially in the context of on farmland, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the importance of understanding farmer behaviors when you're trying to normalize a practice like installing a constructed wetland, and also what barriers you may face when trying to work with farmers to, to get them to see the benefits and maybe to convince them that this is a good solution for them. Um, we need to understand their behavior so we understand what influences someone to adopt a conservation practice such as a constructed wetlands. And on the whole, you know, farmers haven't done a lot of voluntary adoption. Um, and that is because farmers are an increasingly diverse group of people that have a wide array of beliefs, motivations, attitudes that influence their behavior um, in complex ways. So that just means there's no singular strategy out there that will, you know, work for every farmer. Um, We can group farmers based on certain characteristics and tailor messaging and materials to the group, but they're still individual. Farmer Joe is likely different from farmer Betty, so there isn't that one solution. Um, So one of the things we find that's really important is really sitting down and building trusting relationships with our farmers. This takes time, but you really have to understand them um, and understand their, their, their norms, their values, their social beliefs, um, in term, and who's advising them in order to help them make whether this is a good practice for them. So I, I would say it's really my colleague who does this. She grew up on a farm, owns a farm, and can talk all things farm. I did not grow up on a farm. Um, and so her goal and as outreach uh, specialist is to build these relationships, and that's what it is. It's building trusting relationships. So by the time I show up to something um, to see if a smart wetland is appropriate for them, we know the whole family history. We've seen all the farm ground. I know the names of all the farm dogs out there. And this way we can really work together as a partnership. So it's just really making that one-on-one contact can be kind of slow to establish so things are not going to happen overnight. There's a lot of voices in, in farmers' heads, their advisors, bankers, loan officers, who are all, you know, influencing their decisions. So we try to work with everybody who's involved. And if I can ask a follow-up question, this is actually from an audience member. Um, When it comes to actually tailoring the solutions to the farmer and the farm, um, are the the scientific resources or the techniques that you use to do that tailoring, are those proprietary or are those kind of freely available to anyone who's interested in, in learning more? And, you know, can you, are you able to um, maybe provide best practices to farmers who are working in various environments, even, you know, outside of the, the geographic region in which you're currently working? Yeah, all this information is, very, we're happy to share whatever we know, trust me. We want to get these wetlands out there. Um, so we want to share every information. And we're just using best practices from, you know, there's books published on treatment wetlands out there. And so we're just tailoring it to what, but I am happy to talk to anyone. There are certain design aspects, which 
you know, there's some flexibility in that. So they lend themselves to all kinds of different environments. It doesn't have to be just tile drainage water. It can just be surface water as well that you're capturing and treating. And how you design that is just a little bit different um, in terms of, you know, how long the water sits in there. Do you need multiple cells? Um, but wetlands are good at removing pretty much all pollution out there, you know, herbicides, pesticides, heavy metals. So you just have to tweak it here and there, but we are happy to share this information. It's publicly available. Actually, the Natural Resource Conservation Service has a standard and has some of the handbook for how to design these as well. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Jill. Uh, Linda, I wanted to, to turn back to you and ask you about another specific, I, I guess, case study of a community that you've worked with that it was, an, it was a case study that I found very interesting when you and I spoke previously. Um, it's your work with the Hunter's Point community. Um, and I, I understand that this is a community that has historically dealt with significant sewage and industrial waste challenges. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how your oyster restoration projects have helped this community in particular, kind of as an illustrative case study. Sure. Um, the Hunter, the Bayview Hunters Point community is based in the southeast part of the city. And it is um, a part of the city that has a lot of industry, a lot of trucks, a lot of brown sites. Uh, it has the notorious Hunter's Point shipyard, um, which has been cleaned up. And it used to host a, um, a coal burning um, power plant by PG&E, which was shut down by the community in 2005. Um, so the people there have experienced asthma rates and cancer rates that far exceed like the norm in, in the city. So um, there also is a sewage plant there. So um, San Francisco is rather unique in that we have a combined um, sewage system, meaning that every bit of water that uh, goes into a, 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 a storm drain gets treated before it gets released into the bay or into the ocean. Um, but what happens during uh, big storm events like the like the storms we just had that lasted for weeks and weeks is the systems seem to overflow. So you've got a sewage plant there where that has overflowed and and the people there are swimming around in sewage basically. So so they've suffered from so uh, much environmental injustice. The community is is uh, poor and primarily black and brown although there are an Asian population as well. And people are very much aware about, um, you know, in their their um, uh, community, how uh, how much this pollution has affected their the health of themselves and their um, and their their friends and loved ones. So, but the, it's a very strong community, a very much, uh, there's a lot of faith-based organizations. So, so what we have done is uh, we have been organizing there for, for years now, for the last uh, about four or five years. And um, uh, we primarily 
we listen to people. We, we listen to what they have to say. Um, um, this is not just true of this community. This is true of everyone who lives uh, a, around the Bay is when you, when you ask them to tell you about their experience with our beautiful estuary, they will talk about like, oh, the, the pelicans flying in formation or the sailboats on the water, but they don't think about what's underneath the water. Um, in fact, most people don't even realize that the, the estuary is really shallow. You know, it's aside from the shipping channels, um, its average uh, depth is a, about 12 feet. So it's this, so uh, what we wanted to do and what we, we've worked really hard to do in Hunter's Point is to connect people to their bay. As I mentioned earlier, like some of the solutions to uh, that have been proffered for uh, to address the issue of rising tides caused by climate change are to build like, you know, more riprap, more solid type, you know, things to keep the water out. But um, but if you restore oysters, then it's a lot like. Jill's project, it's a lot less expensive and it is a lot, uh, and it lasts longer. So, and it's a living, breathing system, which like wetlands, uh, cleans the water. And um, um, so, so, I mean, that's primarily our focus there. It's been just to, we've done some water quality monitoring and um, what we hope is that if we get enough oysters there, we can actually change um, the quality of the water. So, so San Francisco Bay is not uh, like some people ask, like, are you encouraging people to eat the oysters that you're restoring? And we say our standard response is not yet because our estuary suffers still from pollutants left over from the gold rush, which sent a wave of sediment down into the bay that literally uh, buried you know, millions and millions of oysters and their substrate alive. So connecting people to their to their bay is is what we have really strived to do in that community. and And people really get it and getting them to um, engage, like anyone who's ever worked on any restoration project from planting native plants to trees to wetland restoration knows that, you know, if you give people an opportunity to get their boots in the water, to get their hands dirty, then they feel a sense of ownership and pride uh, that is not going to happen if 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 you just turn it over to some contractors or a government agency. So um, so that has become really apparent in our in our work at Hunter's Point. The community is very engaged. Thank you so much, Linda. We are actually already out of time for this discussion because we had so much to talk about and we've covered a lot here that I want to end once again with one question for both of you that will be sort of like your 30 second parting thoughts, takeaway message. And I always ask a big question as this takeaway message. So I like to say good luck. Um, 
that final question will be, what is one tip or one best practice that environmental organizations around the world could learn from your work? Um, Jill, I'll start with you. And then, Linda, you can give the final thoughts. Well, luckily, Linda pretty much took my answer. She already talked about this a lot in terms that my best practice tip would be to, you know, when you're working with communities, you really want to tailor your outreach or educational messages in a way that resonates with your audience's values. You know, you're not your own audience, right? So you need to get in the community and you need to listen to people that you're working with before even attempting to develop a solution. So whether it's a farmer or it's a municipality and to develop long-term positive relationships really takes time and effort, but provides better opportunities for knowledge transfer and better solutions. And it's not applies just only to farmers, but the ecologists, contractors involved. You know, I've learned a lot through my projects and building every wetland's different. And I learned something from everyone who's been involved every single time. Thank you so much, Jill. And Linda, your parting 30 second thoughts. Is that um, everything is connected. Wetlands uh, play an important part um, in the geographic area that we're focused on, which is the San Francisco Bay and where so many wetlands have disappeared along with oyster populations. Um, but if we can take a lesson from nature who does such a wonderful job of like, here's these systems that I had in place until you built your cities out to the water's edge um, and I can't uh, stress enough how important it is to let uh, to, to work with communities and, and let them be a part of the restoration process. This podcast is derived from audio recordings of SGOE's Innovation Station virtual event series. The views expressed in the preceding episode are those of the featured innovators and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, the U.S. Department of State, or the U.S. government. For more information on the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, its initiatives, and programs, please visit the State Department website at www.state.gov.